Life is full of personal wins. Whether it's cleaning your house, getting that dream car, or checking off your to-do list, winning at life is a great feeling. And with the State Farm Personal Price Plan, you can keep winning when you create an affordable price just for you by bundling home and auto. So give yourself a round of applause. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash Wondery. Code Wondery. Welcome to the Nerdist Podcast number 474. A milestone happened yesterday at the Super Bowl. It was the fourth anniversary of the Nerdist Podcast four years ago. On Super Bowl Sunday, 2010, Matt Jones and I went to Tom Lennon's house and started talking in front of a microphone I paid too much money for. And four years later, here we are. So thank you so much if you've been following the whole time, or if you're new, then welcome. You have an amazingly robust back catalog to go through if you're just joining us. Uh, so we will continue to make these, and we certainly, certainly appreciate your support. Uh, I, a bunch of us, we all have shows at SF Sketch Fest on the weekend of Feb 7 and 8. Um, Nerds Podcast Show on Feb 7 is sold out. I'm, I'm sorry, but thank you if you're coming. But then Feb 8, uh, I'm doing a live Sanjay and Craig, and then um, we are doing, uh, I'm doing uh, Revenge of the Nerd screening at the Castro Theater that night with the cast and Q&A, and then Bring the Rock that night. And then Talking Dead comes back Feb 9. I haven't seen the new season of Walking Dead, but um, we just uh, podcasted Kirkman a couple days ago, and apparently shit gets crazy. I mean, like, crazy, crazy, crazier in a very structured way. Uh, Scott Gimple is doing a fucking amazing job, so uh, I'm very much looking forward to seeing uh, what type of feels we have to sift through on February 9th. So join us, uh, Walking Dead at 9 p.m., and then Talking Dead at 10 p.m., and then, of course, at midnight Monday through Thursday after Colbert. That is a lot of plugs. I apologize. Um... I would like to thank Sherry's Berries for sponsoring this episode of the Nerdist Podcast. You're going to get a 40% savings, all right? You can get berries starting at $19.99 for Valentine's Day. It's so much better than giving, like, a material gift, which I find that I don't know what to do with stuff anymore because I've just accumulated so many things that I don't want to throw away. Uh, but then eventually, then you start becoming, uh, like, a tchotchke hoarder which I definitely am. So I, I think berries are a perfect Valentine's gift. And Sherry's Berries has super delicious giant strawberries dipped in white chocolate, milk chocolate, dark chocolate, chocolate chips, swizzle, decorative swizzles, nuts. Um, and for $19.99, you can get a fantastic Valentine's gift. So go to berries.com, B-E-R-R-I-E-S.com. Way to park that domain, Sherry's Berries. Click on the microphone at the top right corner and type in NERD to get this special offer. It's a 40% savings. It's going to start at $19.99 for a fantastic Valentine's gift, which is delicious and edible. And then there's nothing just sitting around your house anymore. It's in your tummy. And then after that, it's not our business what happens. So, berries.com, type in NERD. This episode of the podcast is BJ Novak, who is uh, a dear old friend of Jonah and mine, going back to our uh, open mic comedy days in the early to mid-2000s. And um, 
You know, BJ makes the point in the podcast that it's 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 interesting that that we actually have to have an excuse like podcasting to get together to catch up, but it really works, and we did get to catch up. And BJ, I mean, I'm sure you're a fan of The Office um, or the Mindy Project or the 15 other things that BJ Novak has worked on that you've probably very much enjoyed. But he's a super smart guy and really cool, and we've never really talked this intimately before so this was uh this was really nice for us just on a friend level he's promoting a book called one more thing stories and other stories which is out tomorrow february 4th so i highly recommend that you pick that up because bj is an incredible writer and uh and this is the nerdist podcast number 474 with our pal bj novak now entering nerdist.com Well, there's a, don't have a lot of cut your legs off. It's, uh, Laser wire? Yeah. Laser wire. Yeah. I'm concerned about my legs and not your phone. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have the same value set. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Please don't destroy my phone by cutting your legs off. Yeah. yeah. It would, would be a really bad thing. It would be bad for both of us. I'd say equally bad, right? I, I, I'm team phone here. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I would have to stand in line to get a new phone. You wouldn't stand anymore. I mean, it's like the very same, it's the same thing, I think, ultimately. Yeah, I think if you took my legs away, I would, I would not notice as quickly as if you took my phone away. <laughs> <laughs> An hour later, I'd be like, wait, where are my legs? <laughs> I've never once lost my phone. Because I mean, if, I'm always on it. If you have no legs but a phone, then you can just distract yourself. But if you have legs and no phone, what are you going to do? Yeah. What? Oh. I don't even know. How would you tell anybody about how would you Instagram having no legs? <laughs> <You'd>... <laughs> yeah. It's impossible. You'd have all these amazing hashtags and nothing to, <laughs> nothing to put it on. Nope. <laughs> Who wants Stumptown Coffee? You know, like no one would get that no, joke no in, in Portland. Yeah. I have no legs. Kids reference. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't. It wouldn't even. Oh yeah, I have no legs. I have no legs. Uh, welcome to the podcast, BJ Novak. Yeah, thank you. Have you done a lot of podcasts before? I was just asked that. Um, no, I've done a few. Oh, okay. But um, not not so many. Uh, what? A, that's the blandest possible answer. <laughs> yeah, but it's, a, it's some, a, but not all. Some, but not yeah. many. Not Between. enough that it's new, and not enough yeah. that I'm an expert. And more I, than some, yeah. less than others. Yeah. More than one, less than all of them. So somewhere in between there, but on the low end yes. of the spectrum. Um, it's very exciting to because we all were doing open mics at the same yeah, time. We knew each other many yeah. years ago. And I, I was doing, I mean, I had started a couple years before you, but you were in the same kind of comedy class with like Dan Mintz and Jonah Ray yeah. and Morgan Murphy and like just all yeah. this, this new. Jared and, Grody. And Jared, Jared Grody. Grody. And yeah. it was definitely, I definitely could tell that there was a movement. Like it was a movement of young people who had just hit an age where it's like, now we're going to go do stand up and we're going to go pursue comedy. I was surprised to like when I met you guys, uh, 
like you know you and Dan and Morgan everybody that like I was like oh there's more there's people my age doing this because mm-hmm. at first well, you're younger like, than us though yeah yeah I'm like a year or two younger than you guys but like I was still like surprised I was like the first of them like I went to was just a bunch of guys that seemed you know they were probably in their 30s but to me I was like oh there's a bunch of old men here right and uh, when I saw when I saw, like I saw you and Dan at the Bruco I think and I was just like oh cool yeah kids. Yeah, we all had that glow. Yeah. Back then. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember seeing Morgan Murphy and thinking, who was that? She was like 18 then. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I wonder if people that age now are even doing stand up the way that we did. I feel like if I were that age now and I wanted to do comedy, I'd be more uh, inclined to try to make something on the web or have start an improv team i mean yeah, it just, to just to, that like, really peaked a few years later yeah yeah well, i mean there was no you know there was there was no ucb out here yet right there was barely any actual show shows mm-hmm. there was largo and then the the m bar day wasn't even around before when we were gone oh that was exciting when the m bar started yeah yeah but you i saw you at largo chris so that was sort of before largo moved to m bar yeah i never got up at largo until after it was kind of already until after yeah. Matt Myra! Hey. Hey. Oh. hey, Matt Myra. Do you have an extra Hello. microphone? No. Okay. Good to see you guys. No, no, no. Hey, look. Look at this. Look at this. Look what we can do. Uh, turn the mic down this way. Katie, can you just plug another one in? Can't you, Hello. Katie? Hey, Matt. Do you guys not know each other? No. Matt not Myra. Really. BJ Novick. Hey. Hey. Nice to meet you. As Katie is setting up the microphone for Matt Myra. Um, I do... Uh, we're recording right now. Yes. I was... The inaugural guest on a podcast I was very excited about, the Dan Mintz and Dan Levy podcast. <laughs> and it was such a dud <laughs> you that they say. never released it. Oh, if wow. I can blame someone, Dan Levy, I think, was so confident that this would be great. And I thought, that's what a great team. I mean, the most animated, friendly guy in Dan Levy and the most dry, deadpan guy in Dan Mintz. And they're both named Dan. Yeah. Like, oh, perfect. And I was like, and I know them both so well. Well, and I think Dan Levy got overconfident and didn't prepare anything. Uh-oh. And we just sat down. And it was like, so it's up. <laughs> it was like an hour and 15 minutes. What are you yeah, doing? Talk about drive that car. Yeah. How long it's ago on was Dan's that? hard drive, like six months ago. <laughs> <laughs> it, just, it just didn't work. Um, yes. There's a lot. I mean, we have a ton we haven't released. There's like a lot live of time, shows. Actually. There are live shows there's that are maybe, sitting. There's a handful of shows. Don't you think? No, what makes it them? not released? Some, t- well, some, well, some too the- hot for TV. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Too hot for TV. <laughs> we need yeah. to do a Nerdist after dark. Uh, no, it was um, let's release a VHS. <laughs> uh, there are some. Oh, I'm some doing of- Andy Cohen's Bravo show next week, and they sent me the schedule. Have you ever done this? No, I haven't done Andy's. It's show. like so. You do this, and then. Uh, then you do the after show on the same set with the same people, right? <laughs> it's the same thing. You know, we did that on Talking Dead before they made us an hour long. We would okay. do the half hour version of the show and then a 15 minute web version. Oh, okay. So there was an after Maybe after, after show. Oh, yeah. And then we. Well, Real Time does that too. Yeah. And yeah. so, but then once our show went to an hour, it was like, well, we don't, we don't want to keep our guests here longer. We've yeah. pretty much exhausted everything about the episode <laughs> in an hour. So we let, we let it go. But, um, uh, uh, what makes a podcast unreleasable? Oh yes. So in the, when we first started doing live shows, we didn't really police how long they were. So we would have these like three-hour live shows because we would open the floor to questions mm-hmm. and uh, or quemens as we called them, and then um, and we would just let everyone who wanted to ask. So 
after a while, what happens is the line starts to get shorter because you're getting, and then more people start deciding, like, oh, I have some. And so it was basically yeah. like a never ending pasta bowl of questions. Yeah. Yeah. This can't end. I have to ask a question. And so, and then so, you know, uh, invariably what happened is Matt and Jonah would get drunker and then start trying to train wreck the show because yeah. it was like three hours long and they thought it was funny. But so we would get these, like, th- we succeeded because we haven't released the episodes. <laughs> yeah. It's but really, it's really because it really fun. boils down to, like, audio issues. Was the audio okay? okay. Or, or was it like three hours long? And and or how? But I'd like Dan to hear Harmon. Jonah drunkenly trying to derail about. a podcast. That's a good <laughs> yeah. podcast. Yeah, I told you, Chris. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he's saying that sarcastically. Jonah. No, I'm not. Oh, that's, no. A, that's an interesting. That's thing. just the sound of his that. voice. Yeah, I'd be like, yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> everything is this sort of dry disdain. <laughs> what's What's really fun is when Matt Myra gets drunk and unknowingly know tries to derail a podcast, and then Jonah just sits back and cracks his knuckles. And he's just like, well, watch it burn. Yeah, total utter barfalama. You're like uh, Donald Sutherland's character in Backdraft. You're like, what would you do if you got out? I watch the world burn. Like that's you. I mean, I don't know what you're referring to. Comic Con. Alcohol in my life. I feel that podcasts, though, do create honestly. I'm sorry for the disdainful tone. <laughs> As always, I do have. Uh, I'm told a lot that people can't tell when I'm being sarcastic. And I do mean this. Um, they do create really good conversations to the point where if podcasts never came out, I think everyone who did them would be like, oh, that's fine. Yeah. It was just great. I mean, it's like yeah. having a cup of coffee in front of you. Like, that shouldn't influence having a good conversation, but it does. Let's have a cup of coffee, that kind of thing. Yeah. Let's do a podcast. We'll just lead to a sort of a deep heart to heart. Like, I'm having a great time. I never get to see you. I've it's never true. seen you no. in ages. No. And I would love you. I don't know yet. That's all right. But, uh, yeah, enjoy. Just, but uh, I, yeah. I know about you. I'd be excited <laughs> to talk to you. But I would never. We would never just sit down at a table. That's true. But no. with microphones, it feels like every everything we say well, is a value. Like get something done. Yeah. Well, also that yeah. little that it also little... turns into our friendship turns into this. Are, are How do we enunciate well? Like we speak. Just... We speak. Yeah. yeah. Sure to. We're positive about things. <laughs> Um, but it, it does activate that performer gene in you when you see a microphone. Like yeah, something right. kind of makes you lean in and, and go. This is great. Like, yeah, performers should get together. Just give everyone a microphone. <laughs> yeah. Have them at like the bar at the comedy cellar, like that bar upstairs. Just, yeah. Take, just, just, yeah, yeah, where the take, comics take, hang take, out. Just like yeah. just put some mics coming. on the table, yeah. and you know, everyone will be on everyone, better behavior. Well, yeah, everyone's just sitting around. What's really funny is that sometimes when I hang out with people one on one, I'm bad at it, and I don't know what to say. And I only recently just went, I've. Podcast. I've talked to people for hundreds of hours. Like I should have no problem. So I think I just need to start pretending in social situations like that it's a podcast because yeah. it, it forces right. you to drive a conversation in a way that you don't when you're just hanging out. It's like if we, if there were no microphones here and we were just at a cafe, it'd be like, yeah. So what's yeah, you know right. things things good? You yeah. Know? For some reason, that's how my Damon Stanley podcast turned out. But in general, that you're all chuckling it. at emails you know, on your phone. You know, Mike Schur, who created Parks and Recreation. Oh, yeah, he yeah. was an office writer, and he is married to Regis Philbin's daughter. And he said that when they started dating, I don't know if this was in his head or real life, but when they started dating, he'd be like, "And how's your cat?" I, we were talking about your cat. Like everything was sort of like in the callback mode. <laughs> There's no cameras here right now. What are you doing? There's yeah, no cameras it's just here. so, yeah. Joyce says you had a cat. <laughs> right. Regisa, I don't know what her name is. Is it not the female version of what Regis is? Um, <laughs> I, Regis, Regis is sui generis, as far as I know. <laughs> but you were, before Matt came in, you were sort of talking about how uh, you hadn't bumped up to Largo yet, but we were, there was a, there was a, 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 a small but kind of robust 
open mic scene in Los Angeles. Because there was no actual shows. There were no actual yeah. shows. And so it was... It was like there was the Knitting Factory. It was knitting a book factory. show. Knitting that Factory was, that was, was a fun good show. show. That was, was a, a fun show. show. There was Di Donato show. Lulu's right. Beehive. Yeah, that was and Di Donato originally booked Largo, right? Yeah. He did, yeah. He came over from Pedro's, Pedro's Bar and Grill. Yeah. Uh, which is where Vance went, I think it was at, oh, Pedersen's was the place. There was a place called Pedersen's, which then became the Gypsy Cafe, which then became the Bruco. Oh, so okay. now was, that's gone. I know. Isn't that weird? I know. Yeah, people are still missed, going. Did you go to that last show? No, I was out of town. It was real yeah, bummer. Yeah, I was out of town, out of town too. Town. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's such a bummer. And the cats in the creek. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I won a Scoomy. Uh, like like, did you win the last I won one of the last Scoomies, yeah. yeah. Um, I have my best newcomer, 2004. Oh, oh that's, that's right. I do. My Scoomy. Yeah, I remember just like making it in that room was real important. But it was there was definitely a tonal shift in comedy when you guys came along because even though I, none of yours and Morgan's and Dan's and uh, yeah. none of your jokes were interchangeable, but there was a new wave of like two line joke yeah. comics. That I'm had, glad you said two line because most one liners are two lines. They're two lines. Yeah. Yeah. There's a setup yeah. and then there's a punchline. Right. Take my wife, please, is a true one liner. Yes. But other than that, they're all two liners. <laughs> yeah. yeah. One sentence is not always. That's a very hard one to get. Yeah. Where there's no context, <laughs> yeah. and you just say what you set it up and knock it down. The uh, yeah. Those yeah. are the like ones. Those. those are the ones that people expect you to have when they come up. They go, "Your comedian be funny." They expect yeah. you to have one sentence. No, they expect they expect set a punchline. They do expect. Okay. I, yeah. Great. What do you call? You know. Yeah. It's a blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Like you could just actually. But when that's people, two lines. When people yeah. do that, you could just do the intonation with no words. Yeah. But it was um, there was definitely a sh- uh, like something had happened, and uh, I mean Zach had kind of been doing it a little bit. It was Hedberg, I think. But Hedberg, and then uh, and then of course you know Stephen Wright. Yeah, I right. think was probably the the head vampire of that for our generation. I saw him the other night just walking across Third Street, and I was like, "What's Stephen Wright doing? Just walking across Third Street at two o'clock it, in the morning?" Oh, it was two. What yeah. were you doing walking at Third? I was Street? driving home. Oh, guys, I live off Third Street. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be fine. But it was interesting seeing. It's him a good sighting in the night. You're just like, oh, Red Sox hat and everything. But when yeah. he did that. When he did that, the, the surreal two, the two, the surreal two line joke guy, he was like, it was so different from anything else that anyone. Oh, he's got a one line joke yeah. I can think of. What's Steve another word for thesaurus? Okay, oh, that's oh, nice. That's yeah. One. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good. That's yeah. that's a good one. And but and but even his, a lot of hers, a lot of his weren't even just two lines. They were longer. Yeah. There were longer stories that he would tell that would always just result in some turn. Yeah. At yeah. the end, there, like it was some, very surreal. But yeah. also hard hitting. They were like that kind it's of comedy to other. me is like yeah. magic tricks. Yeah, because there's a misdirect and you don't see it coming, and then na na na, and then here's the yeah. reveal over here, and so it's you're constantly uh, two line jokes scare me because I don't write them well, and they really do. There's sort of like a fifty fifty on them. Like people are either going to get the turn mm-hmm. or they're not going. You can't. You can't like dazzle them with adjectives, yeah. and you and then know. once you're done, like you know, it's clear everyone knows you're done, and if they're not laughing, you're fucked. <laughs> right? Yeah, you've come prepared. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So did you, you guys all? Did you know each other before you got? To- I knew Dan Mintz, and actually, I'd never. I knew him in college, and I never even thought of being a stand-up when I met him. And he was like, it was like meeting a figure skater, or. Um, it was like meeting someone that you had never met before when we met a stand-up comic. This was um, on the Harvard Lampoon where he mm-hmm. had just gotten in and everyone was sort of a very introverted 
comedy writer who would never go on a stage and there was this kid who just got on who did stand up <laughs> it was so a throwback he was breaking the rules and I was one of those guys like say, do your act like, <laughs> I didn't tell a joke and he'd say and I'd be like oh like yeah. it was a magic trick. Like yeah. that was like like I was a frat guy who didn't get it or something. Hmm. But it, it was I loved it. Um, and, and only years later, when not that many years later, but a few years later, when I was twenty one and came out to L A. and was working as a writer and wasn't happy, I thought I want to do something of my own. And I figured, well, I can write jokes. I can say them. Let's try stand up comedy like Dan did. Yeah. So I was actually. Uh, Although I was the first one out here, I sort of brought Dan Mintz out. And I was like, everyone meet this guy. He's brilliant. Um, And he was a little younger than me, and he moved out later than me. He actually – I was influenced by him because I thought, oh, I can write a joke and and tell it. I I was sort of – that was the guy I knew who had done it. And my dad was friends with a guy named Jonathan Katz. Oh, yeah, of course. Dr. Katz. And he took me out to see him once when I was you know, probably like – 12 or 13 and he's a one-liner comic so I guess I thought of stand-up more than it actually was as the one-liner accurately two-liner thing yeah um and then as I sort of got more into it I realized it was it was a little uh I wouldn't say archaic a little throwbacky and it wasn't the main form of comedy but I kind of thought it was yeah what was the uh, I mean the, I think to outsiders the mythos of uh, the Harvard Lampoon sort of being this like yeah almost like masonic like this yeah i was into that too writers that's why i wanted to be on it and you yeah. had some you have some crazy By house. The way, i like that i unzipped yeah. my jacket just as you were talking about the harvard lampoon so oh, it could have right. sounded like someone's gonna jerk off <laughs> i love harvard lampoon <laughs> some talk. people are really into this <laughs> mythos oh, lampoon. Oh, yeah um but Perfect. uh just you know from the early days of the lampoon films to like conan and then yeah. and you and you know like it, what, what was the it my is it like super 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 serious there in terms of like we're writing about comedy? It's got I mean are people pretty serious and intense or is it or is it's it? It's a couple things. It has a it, it is very serious about comedy, but it also um, on the flip side has inherited this Harvard waspy um, tradition of really acting like you don't care at all about anything real contempt <laughs> for caring mm-hmm. um the gentleman sees like that ivy league thing somehow seeped into this lampoon uh, tradition so i kind of you know i was a jewish kid from like newton massachusetts who was editor-in-chief of his high school paper you know i was like let's you know let's make the best humor magazine since the old days like let's put out more issues and what this was really does. about you know you know, and at the end Matthew. of the year, we'll bind it. Yeah, right. <laughs> this is really like the cool thing of the Lampoon was like, you know, he's never written a piece. He just gets too fucked up. <laughs> like that's, <laughs> that's like, oh, wow. Like that's the guy who gets elected president, you know? <laughs> and I was like, oh, no, I can never be as cool as that guy. And, you know, it kind of. Look how hard he's not caring right, over there. Yeah. That was really the lamp. That was what was cool about it. And there was something to learn. This sounds weird, but there was something to learn in terms of style, in terms of just the spirit of rock and roll or whatever of that. It is a real thing. Like, I wasn't completely crazy to admire and be scared of and want to emulate in some way these kids who were too fucked up to do anything (laughs) ever. Because there is something just sort of romantic and and stylish about it. Yeah. if you got to choose one way to be, don't choose that way. But there is something to learn from it um, in terms of being 
I don't know. There's some compass of um, of authenticity and style that it overlaps with. I, I can't really articulate it, but it it isn't nothing. Well, that said, it was not where I came. I was it's like, so, a, it's such a foreign concept to a lot of people. Just the idea that you can get by and do nothing and still somehow have some sort of place of respect in whatever field it is that you're in. Yeah, I guess. Oh, I mean, yeah. you know what? It's, it's like, archaic. And, oh, hey, you're in Harvard too, but you're yeah. not fucking doing anything. Yeah, it's yeah. not the way the world is yeah. anymore. I think it's the way the world maybe was in like the Ivy League a few generations yeah. ago. Did the rest of this? Did the rest of the school sort of perceive the lampoon as like, oh, they're the sort of like. Were you like a t- were you like a team of wizards among mortals at Harvard? Was it was it a very Lampoon much like a- was kind of hated, <laughs> hated and envied in a weird way, uh, the way that, um, and not in an important way, not on a major scale either, but it was sort of all those obnoxious um, kids. Their magazine isn't funny at all, and it wasn't really funny, although it it had a real intelligence and intent to it. But again, I thought like let's let's entertain everyone at Harvard. <laughs> let's crack them up. Like that was more my idea. And, like Tom Lehrer used yeah, to do. And it was more like le- yeah, exactly. That was where I came from. And it it was really much more of um, let's uh, you know let's impress each other who know the tradition. Let's riff seventeen levels on this on this joke format until it's almost unrecognizable <laughs> except to people who know comedy and then it, it's brilliant. Yeah. Well, that's funny to hear you say that because my assumption <laughs> is that I feel like that's the, um, that's sort of the comedy aesthetic that ultimately bled over to the Simpsons mm-hmm. where you kind of, the Simpsons really kind of became this show that to at least, you know, in the last several years is sort of like, we dare you to get these academic references yeah, that we're yeah. throwing. These really, you know, like obscure writers or painters or whatever. Yeah. They're just, oh, of course, you know, or, yeah. or you know, like, or, or Bart Simpson, you know, like dropping, like, uh, I'm familiar with the works of Pablo Neruda or whatever. You yeah. know, it's like, it feels very much like, oh, you're daring. Yeah, you're, well, those you're all trying were. trying to lose your audience. Yeah, those were Lampoon writers, all of them. Yeah. Um, Even though, almost all of them. From, your, uh, from your group, too. Um, uh, Danny Chun went on to yeah. uh, go and write. Like there, like there was other like writer guys that came out with BJ and Dan too, and it was Alan Yang and Danny Chun and Matt Warburton. That's right. Yes. Yeah. 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 And then the one what was that other guy that does? Uh, I don't think Alan wrote for The Simpsons. No, I might be wrong, but okay. I don't think he did. He writes for Parks and Rec now. That's right. And he wrote for South Park for a time. That's right. Yeah. Um, but those Lampoon guys really had an influence. There must have been some balancing influence because they they did want people to love it, and it worked. You know, there wasn't that outright contempt for, <laughs> for the audience that the lampoon had too much of, I feel. Um, but it did have that, that, you know, we don't care right. if you get it or not, that I think The Simpsons did dare you, and, and you took the dare. Yeah, like, it never, we all took it the never dare. quite turned into a, a, a Dennis Miller monologue. It never quite got But there. even that, there's an aspirational, there's so there's an aspirational intelligence yeah. to yeah. that. Um, it sort of was... The Lampoon kind of like, was it sort of like Delta House in a weird kind of way? Like Animal House kind of thing? Yeah, a little in sort of a wasting away uh, physique <laughs> uh, version of that. Uh, yeah, no, there was Wait, a lot of one at all. <laughs> and it was this very fun decadence for people that 
uh, would never have access to it if it weren't for this incredibly specific tradition. I mean, people that are obsessed with comedy and get into Harvard. Mm-hmm. And there's one building in all of America that is built like a castle yeah. that is an unlimited budget for alcohol and parties um, where you can feel like a king. Um, and that's what everyone had. So it was, and people did get drunk metaphorically on that power, that situation. And I, I did like that. I mean, I, you should enjoy that. It, how lucky are you? Yeah. yeah. Like, it's such a weird thing to get to enjoy. Well, it, it was the ultimate sort of like, you know, Revenge of the Nerds dream. Yeah. When I was growing up. Like, oh, I really Revenge of the find... Comedy Nerd, yeah. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. I, and it, you know, and I went to UCLA, which did not have that, <laughs> which did not have that. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it, that, that was probably the, that was probably the experience that in my head as a kid, I was like, that's what I want. I yeah. want, I want to have this thing. I just stared at them from across the river yeah. at BU. I was like, fuck you guys. <laughs> you know, I wanted to be, it was like that. Well, thing. I was fuck you guys until I got in. I was like, well, maybe not totally fuck you guys. <laughs> no, guys, that was me not caring yeah. before. Did you notice I was not caring before? Please. Yeah. But I did, I cared. I think it's, cha- it changes every couple of years based on who's in it. I think maybe that was an uncaring phase mm-hmm. that I, I think now the whole culture is kind of more, you know, sincerity is cool type of thing. But you worked, um, you worked immediately when you came out to Los Angeles. Well, I did. It wasn't exactly the Simpsons. No. Raising Dad. I'm not complaining, but it was you Raising Dad. You were on Saga yeah, Show. Yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. And I had already met you and, and Bob was like, oh, do you know BJ Nova? Yes, like, we yeah, hung yeah, out yeah, a we couple already, times. Yeah. Right. I came out to LA and, and no one, uh, wanted to party more than Bob Saget, who I thought of as a father figure. And I still am very close with him. Yeah. Um, well, I wouldn't say very, but emotionally very close. And I see him now and then. I'm the, I'm the same way. Yeah. We, you know, our, our rela- actually, we did a podcast about it, but our relationship sort of splintered a little bit when I stopped drinking mm-hmm. because I just wasn't going out with my... You yeah. know, Bob, Bob, at the time, was a party friend. In reality... He's one of the most loyal friends. Yes, you, could, you feel like he's in your family. One of the most caring, if you sweetest know him guys. Well, yeah. yeah, and I mean a guy that you feel like, you know, he would throw himself off a, a building for you if, if, yeah. you, if you want, right. if he needed you to. Um, but uh, so it, it, there was that was definitely a period where he was going out a lot. And he I was went out every out. night. He knew where I had never. Again, I was from Boston. I was not like a cool kid. I had never been. I was twenty two. I'd never been really to a nightclub. And here's this guy. He's like. This uh, Tuesday night we should go. I didn't even know that like certain nights were good. Uh, yeah. I was like, is this, this a guy, joke? There's like Danny Tuesday. Tanner. Where do people go? And it's Danny Tanner. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, where do we go on Tuesdays? I'm like, what do you mean? Like, it was good last night at that place. We go to the Mambo Room. <laughs> go back to that we're place. Going, we're going yeah, to the Mambo like, no, Room, no, no, no. and right. afterwards we're going to Dan Tanner's yeah. after. I mean, he's like, Dan yeah, he knew where every people. night was back then, and I didn't know we're right through past the line. Hey, Bob. Of course, of course. And you would too back then. But I was, I was basically just, and that's. Me. I was never going to go out if it wasn't with one of you two guys. <laughs> I wait in a line. That was that was yeah. a few years after. Like that was when that was when my career was definitely in uh, in a bit of a trench. Um, and so well, it you were rebuilding. You had come from recognition. Yes. You, were, you hadn't done stand-up before you were famous. In I did a little round. bit in college. Had, you, had college. you hit the apex yet of the just right where it was right in the middle? That was right around the period. Yeah, for me anyway. I mean, just in terms of. You know, this is like 2003, 2002, 2003. That was just the, like the, the, the that was around the, the bottom, like, I mean, mm. for me, of where I was. But um, So was Terminator 3 right on the upswing? Was that where that started? Or? No, that was right before. That was still, <laughs> that was still, 
Um, like the surface is way up there. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, single that. I've been off the air for a handful of years, and it wasn't, you know, I wasn't really. So it's not like I could have gotten in all those places if I hadn't been writing Bob's coattails. In. No, no, you were definite. You're you're short selling the fame that you didn't respect, <laughs> but you you were definitely you were very recognized and liked uh, wherever you went. Home run. Yeah. yeah, right. It was, but it was it? You know, I you felt, didn't respect it. But I, other Hollywood. <laughs> Respected and fine. Feel that way. <laughs> I I, uh, I felt like they kept saying no, thank you. But 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 that's what made me work harder with stand up. Was like it was really exciting to sort of feel like I was I got to start over and I had no problem. You know, I feel like a lot of guys in my position who had been on television be like, I'm not going to do fucking open mics, but I'm like, no, right. I love stand up. No, I saw that. In I you, love yeah. stand up, and I just want to do it. And this is how you do it. So no, but you were again, you were quite famous. Whether or not it was something that you respected or, or was going to last for a long time, you were quite famous. You seemed to have a very fun life. And yet you were, I noticed, you really did care about building up an act that you actually believed in. Your stuff was really intelligent. Oh, Your thanks, stuff, man. You were willing to struggle through a bit to get it to a certain place. And you, I, I really admired it because it seemed like you could have chosen a much easier path. I, and, I you want, and now you've, you're where you should be built on... Uh, on quality. I mean, I saw it happen. You, but you were pretty. Uh, you, you always seemed to super to be super put together. Like you, you always, you always looked great and presentable, and 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 you always seemed prepared, and you always, you know, you were on time, and you like. Yeah, I know that was my rap. I was embarrassed by that because that sounded very. I mean. It probably true, but I wore a suit. Yeah, like I, I was showing up to work, but I, I would have rather been cool and like wasting away. And, <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, I, I felt the and it's funny to hear you say that because I felt the opposite. I was like, God, I should really probably take care of myself more. And ah, there's too much drinking to do. I don't know. To me though, I remember thinking you were cool. Like, oh, what thanks, you were doing yeah. because it wasn't like what I was used to or what I saw anyone else right. doing. But I'm you always kind of had like just like. You're like it was very much just like this is my thing, this is what I'm doing, and you didn't seem to care whether like it was considered one way or the other. It was just yeah. your, it thought, was just your yeah. thing. It was definitely yeah. your thing, and you seemed comfortable with it, and and you seemed confident about it, and you seemed committed to it and the material, and and so you know when you especially when you come into a group of people like performers, everyone's like. Am I doing this right? I don't know. Is this good? Yeah. Is that good? You know, when someone comes in and they seem like they've got something figured out, everyone's like, what is that guy? Yeah. How did mm-hmm. he do that? That's crazy. Well, I really wanted to be good. And I, you know, I, so I like worked hard at it. Like I did my homework type of thing. But I, I was self-conscious about that showing. You know, like the, I wrote note cards of every set. You know, I, I looked at them after. I recorded <laughs> them. I listened. I did all that stuff. Sarah Silverman I met through Morgan Murphy. And uh, she, for years, like I'd run into her like twice a year and she'd always smile at me with like a lot of affection because she met me. I was Morgan's friend. And she would always say, PJ, you're a Republican, right? She really, (laughs) something made her think, and she loved that. It wasn't true, but she somehow had figured out I was the young Republican comic who's really funny. (laughs) And like I was a diversity hire for that scene or something, and and that was great. Like she wanted me to know, like that was cool, and that was not who I was, but it was. Like that's definitely how I felt I came across. You know? Well, I was, I always, I was. What I did like about oh, and the then other- like she would smoke weed, and sometimes I would want some too, and she'd like stare at me and oh, like you smoke weed. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you gonna do? I mean, 
Yeah. I really like the, um, the, or at least the, the, the L.A. comedy scene that I was in. The one thing that I really, even though, you know, the New York comedy scene has always been much more robust in terms of audience and venues and number of comedians per capita. But I, but I do believe that um, there was something so warm and supportive I like the LA scene. about the L.A. Yeah. scene. I think it's better. Yeah. That, you know, I, I didn't feel competitive with anybody. I, yep. was, I was always happy when people started trying to do stand-up or got better or started succeeding or, you know. I mean, it, it's a when, – when you when you all this, were just all of a sudden on The Office, it was like, holy shit, that's fucking awesome. Mm-hmm. Like, it, yeah. It, it, I don't know. It felt really good. And I, I, I wonder if it's – I don't know what the difference in the tone was between here. I mean, maybe it is like that in New York too. I shouldn't say I'm not a New York comic. but I don't get that vibe from New York. And I think yeah. I, New York can take a slight hit right now because it's, it's so associated with authenticity and stuff. But there is some stuff in, in the New York scene that I feel that I've observed where it is um, – you're just in much more desperate circumstances when you're trying to make it in New York. There's so few jobs. You're living very far away. It's hard to get anywhere. You're doing a lot of shows a night if you're lucky, Mm -hmm. you know, but it's just that higher pressure, pressurized thing. And I I feel like it comes out in, um, it comes, it's expressed in the comedy a little bit in terms of attitude and anger and hyper awareness of minute circumstances right around you and crowd work and in the moment and all this stuff you get distracted and it's all being expressed and there's something very dynamic about it but in LA first of all you don't have those things weighing on you uh, as much because it's an easier life yeah Um, and second I think because you're aware of um, show business all around you and being on TV, that's in pe- being on stuff that's in people's minds is not why they do it. But there is a positive influence aside from the you know the sellouty thing, which mm-hmm. I agree that's not good. If you shouldn't be out there thinking an agent's in the crowd, but the idea that you want to eventually do something that is on the Tonight Show and everyone loves, like eventually you want to entertain everybody. And not just the ten angry people in this tiny bar. Yeah. Um, I feel like that is more of an LA uh, vibe, and I find the comedy is often more outward focused. It's less distracted by what the comic is actually going through that isn't mass relatable. Yeah, and uh, I actually think that's a really good thing. And well, I just, I, I mean, I like LA. I think it's an underestimated like culture and city. Yeah, yeah and, I agree. And I also, I, I, this, I, don't know, this, I hope this doesn't sound dumb, but I, I honestly I think... I hope it does. <laughs> I, honestly, I honestly think the weather has something to do with the vibe and that it yeah, just... Yeah, sure. It's just... This, the weather is generally the same most of the year and it's yes, very pleasant. Yeah. But yeah. that's a great point because people, people emphasize that the weather's so good in L.A. and that would make you think, well... Generally, very good weather dulls the intensity of everything being produced in it. But what you're totally right about is that the weather is the same. And when I moved to L.A., my friend from L.A. said, L.A. doesn't have good weather. L.A. has no weather. Right, you're yeah. never focused on the weather in L.A. And some days it's 50 and the next day it's 90. <laughs> And it would take several days in a row of 90 or 100 before anyone's like, it's been really hot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, it's just, true. If it was like 110 about, degrees one no, day, you'd be yeah. fine with it. Yeah. There's nothing that, – that extra environmental element is not present to contend with. Yeah. And so, it, you know, I feel like in general, it's just a little more com- – I mean, it's also, you know – Geographically, buildings are lower and yeah. more spread out, so you don't feel. Plus, I think it's a place people get excited when it rains. 
I've looked up rainy places to take a vacation. Oh, this side of Big Island of Hawaii rains all the time. But then if you get tired of that, you just go to the other side of the island. No rain. Yes. No, I did that research. Yeah, it's great. But but no, when there's no weather like that, yeah, it makes you just it doesn't distract you, and you can think about more like the the L.A. comedy that's great, like the Mister Show era that was sort of the shadow of which we were all. Yeah, uh, yeah, witnessing at that Largo scene, that is is the most purely conceptual, ambitious comedy that I can think of, and The Simpsons too. You know, these real super conceptual directions come out of LA, maybe because you're not so distracted by the elements so much. It can really go to a, a, an interesting place. Yeah. Well, it, it is. I, I, I'm always kind of delighted when <clears throat> if there's a New York comic who fucking hates LA and like, oh, LA sucks. All right. And then, you know, between January and March, like, what are you doing here? That's pilot season, I guess. Yeah, right. Yeah. 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 Isn't that a great thing about L.A.? Yeah. That, like, you have a very good chance at, like, yeah. booking a pilot? Yeah. That's cool. January, huh? How do you like wearing that T-shirt? <laughs> right now, yeah. everyone's Long sleeve T-shirt works just about any day of the year in L.A. Yep. Yeah. Um, so when uh, – so you, you were doing stand-up for a couple of years, and then I don't know – I feel like the story of you becoming involved with the office was didn't they didn't they someone just like saw you at the improv right is it was it that over, simple skipping over punked I would thank you oh <laughs> come on that was huge I, the scene that was like, so huge so were you, audi- you were you auditioning at that point I was like in that you know As that moment actor. that you have when like you're just the comic that like one agent says it to another mm-hmm. agent he says it to a comedy booker says it to you know, yeah. and just everyone's talking about, oh, that's the guy to look out for these days. Like that was yeah. my three month period of that. You know that period I'm talking and, about. And again, yeah. again, being you know the, in, the okay, I, you, you're finally good. Yeah. Just when you click into good, word gets around. Yeah. But every they few months, up for there's a, a new guy. People, I think during that time, Greg remember? Warren. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Bob Saget. That's right. Course. Yeah. Um, how did the shows go before Saget? What do you mean? I mean, how were his? How did his audience? What's it like opening for Saget? Yeah, I mean, I had done some good. sets with him at the Laugh Factory, but um, it's not my favorite place in the world to perform. Yeah. And so, uh, was how did they? You know, because some some of your jokes are pretty pretty heady. So how did how did yeah. the Laugh Factory? You know, I think I, I didn't even now looking back, I can analyze that phase of my comedy better. Why it worked when it worked, why it didn't when it didn't. But I think there was yes, it was very conceptual. But I was so blissfully unaware that that would be a problem, <laughs> and I was wearing a suit, and yeah. I think you could see the eagerness all over me. And I think that became like a character to people. Like, this all this like sweet nerd on stage. That's like, so funny. I went to Omaha and opened for Greg Warren, and they loved me in Omaha. Oh, wow. It was like, oh my God, like college boy. Like, <laughs> you know, like, it, like it was a character, and it was just, you know, just me telling jokes, you know. <laughs> Battered like, oh, women. smart guy. Sounds delicious. Yeah, doesn't make doesn't it right. Make it right. <laughs> <laughs> um, Trident. But, that, was, that was one. Yeah. Remember Trident? Trident. Who wants to chew a gum that means three teeth? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, you know, and then also, like, I, you know, I love a ton of your jokes. I've actually me- mentioned your jokes on this podcast, awesome. like, a bunch of times, but one of the ones... I would ever crediting you. It's really fucked up. Oh, yeah, wow. yeah. I would just take it. I would just take it. Um, but uh, one of the... When you, it was, like, your first longer bit, which was uh, a new Hitler... Yes, which I fucking I remember like just, which it I, turned into a piece in the, my, my book actually. Oh really? Yeah. Oh, that's like, awesome. Yeah. Do you do you remember that? I remember. We need a new Hitler, <laughs> yeah. but not yeah like the old not Hitler. like the old well, Hitler. Once I opened, I'll tell the joke. Uh, 
to explain to anyone who, everyone who doesn't know what this is, mm-hmm. but um, I. I did this joke. Saget made me because this is like a comics joke. This joke, yeah. it's so dark and, and weird and a little form format breaking. It's just like a comic would like this joke. So Bob, when I opened form at the House of Blues in Vegas, oh, shit. like not New Year's but something like that, he's like, "You got to do the Hitler joke." <laughs> and I was there, and I was doing really well. And then I was like, I gotta do it for Bob, you know? So I do the new Hitler joke and just my whole set died. Like I barely climbed out of that hole. But the joke is, um, (laughs) after all these relatively charming clean one-liners, I say, we need a new Hitler. (laughs) And there's just a pause. And I say, let me explain. (laughs) A Hitler, nothing like the old Hitler. (laughs) I think we can all agree the old Hitler was a monster, (laughs) an evil man. I'm talking about a new Hitler, a Hitler who wants to improve our schools. (laughs) A Hitler who understands that ordinary Americans need more access to health care. A new Hitler. (laughs) A good Hitler. And then sometimes I would say, (laughs) and if this new Hitler is a few ideas on what to do about the Jewish problem. <laughs> I don't see the harm in hearing him out. <laughs> so I did this in Vegas on the stage of like a thousand drunk people. Oh, fuck. And uh, man. Why is he talking about yeah, exactly. that? Like that must have been such a weird... To the because I just they should have been those... more scared of the drunk people who really yeah, were behind no, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, God, it yeah, that's what I've been saying. <laughs> Love schools, hey Jews. But yeah. the uh, but but just hearing the words like Vegas, House of Blues, yeah. And did you say New Year's or not New Year's? It wasn't New Year's, but I feel like it was. But some there was some holiday type... weekend or something. It, it was basically it was a lot of elements that would have put you in sort of the lowest common denominator environment. Yeah. Uh, which I wouldn't my comedy at that time I never would have survived because I was so a product I I, I do tell people when they say like well if I want to start comedy and I live in you know Texas what do I do like well go to Austin first Mm -hmm. develop there then from there go to a place like Chicago or New York but mm-hmm. don't don't develop in Los Angeles because I feel like you can develop a lot of really bad habits in Los Angeles that yeah, don't yeah. Being work. Being too them. what? Being too inside right, the, the yeah. industry, yeah. and also <clears throat> playing too much to comics. The back yeah. of the room. Really yeah. Playing too much to the back of the room because a lot of the open mics don't have the benefit like New York or Chicago of just getting like walk in traffic. Like people will just in New York like a random like real audience people will just walk in if they're walking by oh foot traffic. But Los mm-hmm. Angeles is very much a culture of intent. You have to yes. know where you're going and you have to go there on purpose. Yeah. And so <clears throat> it's harder to get people out. So you are performing more for just comics. And when you do that, your natural sort of Darwinian inclination is to survive by writing jokes that comics laugh at. And com- yeah. jokes that comics yeah. laugh at do not really always yeah. work when you go into, into mainstream rooms or you go to other parts of the country yeah. They don't get the meta jokes, you know. It's like they of just course, yeah. they you can lead them there if you're experienced enough, but ultimately they will believe whatever. Like a lot of people in those in that room probably literally thought you think there should be a new Hitler because you Maybe. said those words. Yeah. And so they they take everything at face value. Right. So it's not a room where people are conditioned to come in and go, okay, already I'm coming in and knowing that whatever this guy says, there's at least one level yeah. of irony. Yeah. Like you, you get a credit. You get an irony credit. Right. In Los Angeles. And you yeah. don't get that everywhere else. Yeah. No, a lot of my early stuff was very much in that vein. Yeah. I had a lot of fun doing it. Maybe that's why I like the LA scene. I like that stuff. Yeah. yeah. I like conceptual. 
were you did you always feel comfortable or was it a was it a, a facade did you not feel because you always came off very like you, know, you came off like you were pretty confident yeah yeah um, that was uh, I don't know half true I was confident but also very nervous yeah yeah I think some people. I think a, a good way to deal with being uh, nervous were me, I will just talk a lot. So then it becomes yeah. very apparent that I'm nervous. Right. But no, some... you wouldn't know from the way I did my act because I never – I was very not personal. Um, it was very scripted. It was like I wrote all these jokes. Here are all these jokes. Yeah. So even if I was scared, it probably came across like, well, this guy really sticking to what he's came here to say. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a good thing about the short-form joke is that, you know, you – you don't have to invest yourself into the environment. Right. You can just kind of be like, well, I'm just going to be here and I'm going to be throwing these out. Yes. And, and if you didn't like this one, here's another one. Yeah, exactly. And it's the obvious limitation of it. Yeah. You can't express exactly. anything that personal without going to a larger, a grander level of, well, who is the kind of person who wanted to come say these things? Yeah, yeah that, was, that was my problem because I, like, like, you know, I was trying to do short jokes too and I was just real bad at it. And uh, like, like one time I just ended up telling a story because I just ran it. Because you know, I got through all these short jokes and I uh-huh, still had yeah. time. And I was like, well, and a thing happened. So I just told the story and it got a bigger reaction than I'd ever gotten before. And I was like, oh, maybe that's you know, when, that, when the process leads yeah. you to the direction that you should right. be going. Well, that's the, trial, that's the sort of the trial by fire thing. Where, you know, all of a sudden you start doing all the wax on, wax off moves and you don't realize like, oh, I guess that was in here and I couldn't have. Yeah. I didn't know until I was put in a situation that this is what, you know, this is what my body would spit out Mm -hmm. on stage. Yeah. I mean, somewhere our subconscious brains know who we are and we don't know who we are I think most of the time on the higher levels. But when you're in a crisis, which is a crisis, like the adrenaline and it just... It's just like, what do you got? You know, right. And then just something comes out of your mouth. My and, body goes, uh, sweat. We got a lot of that. <laughs> but, you know, the, the other thing about the two-line joke thing that was very hard for me is that I don't write well off stage. Like, I just have to mm-hmm. go on stage with some ideas and mm-hmm. then my mouth spits something out and then I'll go, oh, that's it. Yeah. It's like the science. Nervous, it's a nervous energy. Uh, it is. Yeah. But you actually. I'm not that way, no. Yeah. <laughs> I'm the opposite. Yeah, you're very. I'm like, where's my? What's in the teleprompter? Like, well, that's why it's really. That's why I like. I came here to do something specific. It totally makes sense to me, though, that you were the newspaper. That you were editor for your high school newspaper. Yes. That feels like this is this guy. There's a deadline. We yeah. have to do all this work beforehand, and it's very important. Right. And these are the steps, and right. you follow through, and then you put out a newspaper. Yeah. So do you, you were discuss, So you had done punked. How did you get? And I want. I wrote funny stuff for my newspaper, but yeah, I had to be out on time. Yeah. yeah, there was very much a, there was a regimented there was a, a structure and a process that you understood behind it. Like a newspaper just doesn't happen. Yeah. by itself. Yeah. Um, so you had done punked a bit, and then is that so then I thought punked would be what I was famous for for the rest of my life, and I was happy about that. I was like, I'm going to be the guy. I told that to a friend. I was like. I, for the rest of my life, I'm the guy from Punk. Like, and I meant that as a good thing. I was like, I'll always be able to get like a free drink at a bar or something. Like, what was the? What I didn't realize like you, you're very famous and completely forgotten. Yeah, on an MTV show. What was the girl? There oh, was like, I know. There was like a like one that just blew up. One of the pranks you did that I did. Yeah. was Hillary Duff. That's right, yeah. it was Hillary Duff. Um, yeah. I was Hillary Duff's driving instructor when she was 16, and I put her through this really. It was. I just watched it the other day with a friend. It's. It's a really good prank. I mean, I didn't plan the prank, 
But and she had no idea for real. No, yeah, I ran into her like a year ago, and she had no idea. Um, <laughs> but she was 16. We, they, her sister and mom took her to this driving academy, and I was the driving instructor. And I went on the road with her, and I, I knew all the rules, but also like told her to do all these dangerous things. <laughs> and um, then. <clears throat> I made her take her rings, stop the car, take off her rings, which I said were a reflection hazard. And then, uh, Brandon Johnson was another actor. Oh, yeah. And he, his job was to pull up behind us, start honking. And I would say, stay parked. And he would keep honking until I got out of the car, picked a fight with him, threw a smoothie at him, <laughs> That's right. and bashed his car with a baseball bat, and then told her to drive as fast as she could while Brandon chased us. Then we pulled over again. I got out to talk to Brandon. Brandon um, threw me uh, like down into a bush and started beating me up. And then the other guy in his car <laughs> came in, forced Hillary out of the car, <laughs> carjacked the car, and drove away. And then I told Hillary that not only had she failed her driving test, but that she had to pay for the car. <laughs> and then Ashley Kutcher ran out. <laughs> and got to be the good guy. Um, but yeah, when that actually happened, I was like, holy shit, like, yeah. what a life I have. Yeah, I mean, so it was insane. so much fun. Yeah, that was like the biggest, the, like, of that season, I think. That was like the one that everyone yeah. always talked about. That was the one on all the shows and stuff. Yeah. The Office to me was an amazing feat because it so many times has American television tried to adapt a British television show or even tried to readapt a show that Britain co-opted and then try yeah. to readapt it again yeah. like um uh, um, Dear John. Not no the uh, coupling. Coupling, yeah, yeah. coupling. Yeah, yeah, the Moffat Moffat wrote on that. Stephen Moffat wrote on that show, and and so or what was that show? So it was a. Uh, oh the, yeah, the, BBC America wouldn't let us do any coupling references. Do any coupling references. So <laughs> the the idea that you could take an iconic British show that immediately people are going to be critical of because they're like, well, it's yeah. not the original. Yeah. I mean, it's not, but still managed to create something which had its own. Voice and was its own un- its own yeah. world uh, was a pr- was pretty fucking remarkable because that re- that just that's like one out of a hundred times that actually happens. Yeah, and we were I was very aware of that. I mean, it was considered the worst show you could be a part of for the first six months to a year of that process. The coupling with this hit British show had just been adapted disastrously yeah. with the same producing team also on NBC. And it was really uh, uh, angrily mocked that this had been attempted. And then the same producer (laughs) and the NBC bought The Office, an even more beloved show, and said they were remaking it. People were so angry and upset. And the British really, I mean, that was really stunning when that came out. I mean, you remember when that show came out. It it was really, unlike, and it was really a special, jarringly special show. And... It was a. It was like a really bad idea, and at that time, again, that was like the three month period where everyone wanted to know who I was and what I. Well, I was taking a lot of general meetings. <laughs> you know. What do you want to do, BJ? Yeah. To be yeah. writing a script? Exactly. Well, well yeah. seven people in a room. Yeah, um, and I had an offer to do to have a holding deal at Fox, which was like a big offer, very big for someone that was like out of money from raising that uh, like two years prior uh, and uh, and this show which had, I had no offer on The Office but and everyone said it was the worst show in the world but I met with Greg Daniels and he had mapped out for me his his the approach he was going to take and his theory of comedy and um, I just trusted him 
um, even though the show, it was very, like, it's, it's easy to forget. It was a very uncool. And people were, like, angry. Oh, I remember. That Definitely, people were yeah. trying that. People were angry at everyone involved. It was people were rooting for it to fail, to be validated. People that I liked were rooting for it to fail. Um, it, but I, I talked to Greg. I, I just saw it. Um, and the first episode was word for word, almost word for word, yeah. about 70% the British, which was um, in some ways a mistake. In some ways, it was secretly a good thing because it prevented the show from making any major moves before it knew what it yeah. was. Right. You know? and, and so that may have actually kept it much more stable than, than it might have been. So that it may actually, going back in time, that might actually have been the best decision, even though it was also in many ways a very bad decision. Well, especially because I think a lot of people's perception of The Office was like, they're just improvising the entire thing. Mm-hmm. Like, and I don't know how, I don't know how much of the original office was not really at all. Not really at all. But it, but it felt it, you know, it felt very improvised. Like it felt yeah. very improvised. And so, you know, then you run the risk of people going like, you're taking the magic right. away it's from a this copy. thing. Yeah. And right. you're copying this thing. Yeah. And so, but to come on as a, as a, as a writer and a performer on a show is not that does not normally happen I don't know in television yeah. you're either one or the other it's like oh you're right you're on the show but to come on it's like you're gonna write on the show and you're gonna be on the show too yeah. like that was a that was a really interesting yeah thing um, that did was that the plan from the get go that was the plan Greg saw me uh, at the he actually saw me at a showcase for something else um, and when, after I met with him he said you know I, I was thinking I would have writer performers I would try that model because he had been at SNL, is actually more common than people think when you consider that it's just uncommon for someone to be hired for both. Right. But yeah. any comic that headlines a show is typically like Jerry Seinfeld right. was a writer and star on a much bigger level. Larry David is, you know, yeah. Louis C.K. now, um, Tina Fey, you know, that Ray Romano goes yeah. on and on. That's actually very common. That's it's very just common. To yeah. be a staff writer, and like an ensemble character for two jobs is unusual. Yeah. Um, but an SNL writer, performer. So I think he had, Greg had worked so many years at SNL. He thought of it as uh, sort of an authentic way to do comedy, to have a couple writer performers in the mix to keep it authentic. And it was also Mindy Kaling and well, Paul Lieberstein who ended up doing that too. I wonder, um, because, it, but NBC gave it a shot. I mean, like they really... You know, they they allowed the show to find its own voice. Yeah. Which, that, how long did that take, do you that, think? That, I think it took only till episode two. I agree. Um, people often say, and I, I let them, because it's a compliment and they're conflating, but people often say to me, you know, uh, when, at the beginning, I know exactly where they're headed. <laughs> they say, in the second season, you really found your voice. I, I think they just think we copied the whole first season. Episode two was completely original. It was Diversity, um, was diversity Day. Diversity Day, yeah. And uh, all the rest of the first season were all... I mean, everything else was completely original. But the pilot was very heavily promoted, very heavily watched, very heavily panned. And I think that it took a long time to dig out of that hole. Yeah. By the time people noticed we had found our voice, it was season two. And then, you know, it's it's just funny that coming to the end of the journey of the show, you know, the show that's, <laughs> that people in the beginning were shitty about, just like, where... Where is it? Why does it have to go? Where is it going? You know, like just that feeling of loss yeah. from a thing that, you know, was 
probably just like a, a little stray dog that came along. Get out of here, you goddamn! Yeah. Where's well, that little yeah. dog? I love that. The Royal dog. Rumble kid, the reaction Royal Rumble video we had played on at midnight, where he freaks out over the ending of Royal Rumble this year. There's another reaction video of him after the last episode of The Office. <laughs> Oh, he's really? Just bawling on his couch about the office oh, being really? over? Uh, it's spectacular. Oh, wow. So, you then from there, did you ever did you audition a lot or did they just sort of see you and go, hey, you know, like, like for Inglorious Bastards or any of the movies, was, you know, did someone like Quentin Tarantino go, hey, I like you on the show. Do you want to be in this movie or did you actually have to go through the process like an actor? I, I would always have to audition, but it usually was um, the casting director had the idea. Mm-hmm. Because they knew the office, you know. Okay. Oh, you know who'd be good? That that kind of guy. Yeah. So that that would get me the audition. Um, so it's sort of, I'd say, it got me halfway there. I mean, that's pretty amazing. <clears throat> that's a pretty amazing thing to go from, you know, like raising dead, punked office. Yeah. Quentin Tarantino, like that's a yeah. pretty incredible jump to yeah. those to those things. And Did you- Disney movie now. Like a Disney movie is under your belt. Yeah, yeah. that's true. Not I, just any Disney movie. A Tom Hanks-led Disney movie. Yes, that's true. <laughs> but I did notice to be to be part of a um, to be part of a mythology yeah. is very special. Like there was something. Save Mr. Banks was a good movie, but um, there was something extra that it was like everyone from Disney has sort of a, a you're like part <laughs> of a, a mythology. You're part of a universe yeah. a little bit. When you're, I didn't know that when I just thought like, oh, cool, great movie, you know. Yeah. But like, a, you're right, a Disney movie. It yes. has this extra, like, um, almost religious. A Disney yeah, movie about Disney, Disney movies. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they could yeah. just. They, that's you're in a movie that they could put in a vault and then release I'm later sure. on. <laughs> you know? Right. But I, I, I seem to recall a story where I, I said, was it someone? Oh, Scott Ackerman just was telling me about like the vault oh really the, there was a Some, great people love making fun of that vault well there was a great um, TV fun house on SNL uh, uh, but it was a TV fun house where it was like a fake commercial for like the Disney vault where it's like uh, they, they keep on releasing things and immediately put it in the vault <laughs> yeah. and then they bring it back for like twice as much money uh-huh. it's, a, it's a really really good and it's all done in Disney animation but it's a TV uh, fun yeah. house okay I That's thought a, I thought you would, I thought you would tell me a story after you did Inglorious Bastards I was like oh did is Brad Pitt strange or weird? And, you, and I think you said, yeah, you know, he's fine. I, but I, I you, you said you found your, you were just in a trailer with him all day once. Just yeah, no, like I felt weird. Talking I about, in, he was asking about comedy and yeah, stuff. Yeah, well, it was a scene that didn't make the movie, a lot of scenes, that they filmed like four hours of, of narrative for Inglorious Bastards. So it was a scene in which Brad Pitt and I are both kidnapped in the back of a truck. And there's bags over our heads, and our, we're handcuffed, and we're kind of having a heart-to-heart. I, I wish it hadn't been gut, but um, <laughs> I understand. Anyway, so, uh, you know, between takes, when they're adjusting lighting and everything, it's just me and Brad Pitt in this truck. Like, no one else. Hmm. And um, he is a very polite – I mean, anyone who's worked with him will tell you he is – an exceedingly polite, well-mannered, friendly person. And so he would ask, like, now tell me about stand-up comedy. Tell me about uh, the show The Office. How's this Corral fella? All these questions. And after a while, I realized, oh, my, I'm not asking him anything. I'm, I'm so conceited. I got, uh, what, do you, what do you ask him, though? And then I was like, well, what do I say? Like, I seem like... That's the wife. I was like, that's exactly it. I, I, was, I was like, how's... Um, and I know they're not married. Right. So, and I didn't want to call her Angelina or Angelina Jolie. Like, right. I was, so I was like, how's, 
How's your girlfriend? And <laughs> <laughs> your he's like, uh, superstar girlfriend over there. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's literally. It's, it's weirdly unfair because there. It's a very one-sided relationship because even though you don't know him personally, you know a lot about his life. I know a life, lot about his and life, and he knows zero about you. I mean, right. not zero. Fine. He knows he's familiar with you, but he yeah. doesn't know. Like you're not. You know him way more than he knows you. Right. Yeah. So how do you how do you know what to pick in that instance? Yeah. That's I, not. I. I, I was blanking for a while thinking <laughs> and I remember I asked like um, where I thought this is a smart question like oh where do your kids uh, go to school when you're traveling back and forth and and then I was like oh he doesn't think I'm not gonna like kidnap them right like, <laughs> like, tell anybody because he's telling now he's telling me like the, the names of, the of the schools and I, yeah and, um, I, I was just so self-conscious that everything all personal information from Brad Pitt is very valuable private information right. that I, I have no bad intentions about, <laughs> but like, I didn't know what to ask him that was both friendly and harmless. Yeah, I guess that is sort of tough because there, you know, he has defense shields that you, it, the, one, one of the things that I'd heard about, you know, interviewing someone, a friend of mine interviewed Brad Pitt and he said um, that he'll always take a minute and then he'll answer the question. Uh-huh. Probably his reasoning was that he thought because, you know, whenever Brad Pitt opens his mouth, it ends up on a news site of some sort, uh-huh. some entertainment site. So he has to, like, almost like a chess game, be so careful about everything that comes out of his mouth mm-hmm. so that he's not, so that it's not twisted or yeah. warped or used con- against him or out of context, yeah. you know, that uh, it just. I mean, it, it sounds like a kind of a bummer existence. I mean, like when you strip away all the, oh, he's got all the money in the world and yeah, Angelina right. Jolie and these kids. And, you know, yeah. it just sort of sounds like they're in kind of a weird social prison mm-hmm. where they can't really interact with other human beings in, 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 a, in a way that, you know, we're, the way the rest of us can. The way yeah. they did for most of their lives. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah. it's been so long now for them. Yeah, I mean, you true, know, yeah, yeah. you know, Brad Pitt, like, th- like from Plus, Th- Thumb and Louise on, like Angelina Jolie like, was always John Voight's kid, so that was weird to start. With. <laughs> right? No, that's you know? true. I mean, she probably knew yeah. all along. Yeah. So, do you? Um, I mean, it feels like it feels like you probably have a nice, comfortable amount of recognition where it's like, oh, people recognize you, but it's not intrusive, and you know, you don't, you know, people aren't necessarily. Uh, there's no paparazzi, really, or 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 is it like that? In one way, there's no paparazzi. There's no. I'm not that. You're correct in general that I, yeah, I'm at this exact medium level of fame where no one. If uh, Katy Perry is at the same restaurant as I am, <laughs> and then I walk out, they're already there with yeah. the camera. <laughs> yeah. They'll take my picture. Why not? Digital camera. Oh, hey, look at this. And maybe I'll do burn. something stupid. Man, I don't know. Maybe like, Mindy like, will show up. Uh, who knows? Um, but they would never follow me. You know, right. it's not that kind of thing. But I think it's something about my face. I am way out of proportion recognized, way out of proportion recognized to my actual level of fame. I was in an airport today uh, from uh, in O'Hare today coming back to L.A. And, you know, half a dozen people, a dozen people shouting my name, asking for pictures. I'm not that famous. Passengers or TSA workers? um, Both. TSA workers, too. TSA are are really on top of... They're hardcore pop culture consumers. They They were the biggest attack of the show, fans. They loved attacking... 
I could not That's walk cool. through security without somebody asking I, me about I, a gadget. I, I, had a, I had a Thundercats bag. I just had a bag with a Thundercats logo on it. The Almost the only time I, it ever got recognized was TSA. Uh, At airports all over the country, the bag would go through and someone would go, Yo, Thundercats! Uh, <laughs> Are you serious? Like, it was so consistent. It yeah. was so, so, so consistent. That must be fun if you're People a TSA still agent. Ask like, me how that is the is. game you'd play. Like, who'd you see? You who'd know, you see you could, today? Yeah, yeah you of could course. Get, you could, because you see a million people, especially at LAX or something. And you don't yeah. get special treatments. Like, right. they, they get to, you know, like, no, famous, you know, like, the most famous people in the world will still still have to go through TSA, still have to take right. off their shoes. So it's kind of a, it is sort of a, an interesting, you know, like. Equalizer. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. It is totally an equalizer. Yeah, not but to be it, confused it just, with the equalizer. It just feels like when they're not working, they're just consuming media. Non-stop because they are so they're sharp about it too. Yeah, I mean, maybe they. Key and Peele have play TSA workers. <laughs> oh yeah. man, they're really funny. Yeah, they. Uh, oh, I bet those guys get fucking. Oh, oh my god! god. Of course, they must, yeah. right? Yeah, who's just yelling? <laughs> Everything. Neeson's my shit. <laughs> their bits are their 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 bits are so fucking good. That when I found myself when we were going through, I think this was in an at midnight meeting. We were actually going through a, a football thing with a bunch of the players' names. <laughs> I was like, "This is really just yeah. like their bit," you know? Like, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. That's why. That's why it has fifty million views because yeah. it's you know. Oh, no, they're great. Um, so what? What's you, you have a pretty solid work ethic. Do you have a long term plan about what you? I mean, you have the book coming out, which we'll talk, we'll yeah. talk about in a sec. But what is your? What do you see? Like, what do you want to create and build? And, like, what's your ultimate... I want to create the most amount of most impactful stuff. Impactful in what way? Comedy way or just... Um, No, just stuff that matters. Like, I saw... um, I'm sure I won't offend anybody. I saw... While I was filming Inglourious Bastards, which was so exciting, of course. And I have a small part in it. I'm not saying that, that everyone... You know what I'm saying. But I was very lucky and excited, and it was like a dream come true. And I wanted to do more acting at that time. And I, I like acting. But there was a movie that we were watching in the hotel, and it was like Mark Wahlberg and Joaquin Phoenix. And I don't, I don't know, man. It, what, it's like the kind of movie they play on a bus in Peru. You know, like, <laughs> and I remember thinking, and I remember thinking, man, if my agent had called and said, you're going to be you know, the drug smuggler in the second act of this movie, Joaquin Phoenix, Mark Wahlberg, the guy who directed whatever, I'd be, I'd have been so excited. And I thought, how do these guys stay? How do these guys show up for coverage? Like, it's just, how do you just, it's not even your day on camera and just Mark Wahlberg is talking to you <laughs> saying like, did you get the guns? Like again <laughs> and again, and then your day is over and you never yeah. laughed and you never <laughs> made a decision. And then that movie comes out and, no one even remembers the name of it in a yeah. couple of years. And it's just that Mark Wahlberg movie or whatever. The, the fourth lead was brilliant. And you, you don't even remember who that was. Was that Benjamin Bratt? Who was it? You know, who cares? <laughs> it was like almost every movie is like that. And people, that's as an actor. Imagine as a director yeah. or a producer or writer where it's your only project for years. Yeah. And then that happens and it just, almost all movies and TV shows end up having no impact. Really, um, except for little pieces, it made someone's career go in a certain direction, or two people fell in love during the making of it, or um, you know, touched a couple people's lives in an interesting way. Everything has some impact, but they all pretty much have no impact. It's just sad. They made a wrong turn. They were marketed wrong, and 
I put so much into what I do. My fear is um, making something non-impactful, and I, I'm willing to do it, you know, as the the collateral damage of trying hard all the time. Of course, it's going to happen to all of us, but that's what I mean by impactful. Like the office was impactful. Um, and the Mindy project, which I help out on sometimes is impactful. It's not at the level the office was, but, um, it, it is impactful to the people who see it and talk about it. And so I want whatever it is. Um, I want things that don't go to waste that matter to the people who come across it. And I want to do as much of that as I can. Um, and I mean that as a writer and I love to be in stuff when I can and, Again, have impact. Again, I don't want to be the the drug smuggling little brother who gets <laughs> killed and no one remembers who you are. I'm not good at that, and I don't add anything to it. So I want to act when people are like, "Oh, that was a cool thing you did in that movie," you know? Yeah. So I, I think I want to have as much impact as I can in as many um, projects as I can, and I mainly mean that as a writer. Well, that's a good. It's a good goal, and at least as a writer, you have a little more control than as an actor with that sort of thing because it's it, it's. Especially now, I think part of the part of the problem is there's just so much of everything. Yeah, that's that. It's like people are sort of crushed by the weight of how much stuff there is out there. Unless that, you're TSA. Unless you're TSA. <laughs> but but previously, you know, things that maybe would have been more impactful can kind of get lost now just because there's so much stuff. Yeah, but. You know, Key and Peele has impact. Um, yeah, yeah. And that's, I don't know if their ratings are big and they're one of a million. They are. Ch- oh, they are big. Like yeah. it. But um, if they hadn't been, I would still call it impactful. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's quality. If, yeah. If it's quality and, and somehow you're able to ensure that it's quality, even if that just yeah. means like you just trust, you just trust the executive or you just trust whoever is <laughs> in charge of getting it on the air, making the ads, whatever. Um, I, I, for some reason, a lot of things. Um, not a lot of good things get lost to me or great things get lost. I, I think like TV is so crowded. There's all these great shows that I haven't seen. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen Homeland. I'm sure it's great. I haven't seen Homeland either. Right. But um, that's okay. Like yeah. there's, especially it doesn't mean it's not great or not mattering. Like I, it's, it's, there's so much important stuff that we don't even get around to seeing it all. Yeah. So I think, I think it's good. You have a better word than I, I think when I think I'm saying the same thing, when I say something is sticky, like oh, yeah, yeah. there's no, a that, yeah. impactful is, is a much, is, that's a, that's a better, I think that's a better word for it. Cause if that has a little more weight to it, but you know, sticky is just that thing that just nuzzles under, yeah, your, under, the, under you. your brain. You're like, yeah. oh, you know, yeah. if you're thinking about it after it's over and yeah. you can't wait to see it again and you're talking with your friends. So it is, it is the same thing, but I think of it more like, you know, oh yeah, there's one special element mm-hmm. that you know, no matter what, it just it just burrows in. Yeah, and I don't know if that's I don't know if that's a certain amount of honesty or authenticity or it's because it's not just. I mean, it's just like with comedy. Like you could see a comedian who's hilarious, mm-hmm. who has really great jokes. Yeah, but then you kind of don't remember the guy. Yeah. You're like, oh yeah, it was kind of funny. But then you see someone that really says something that just kind of like. It just burrows into your soul a little bit. Yeah. Even even if it's not a high laugh per minute ratio, but then you're just like, fuck, that guy is just, I don't right. know, there's something about yeah. it, you know? And yeah. I don't know what that element is, but I think it might be a layer of authenticity that people, that yes. connects to someone on a human level. Yeah, I wish people heard that, <clears throat> heard that speech you just gave who are getting into comedy because I think that, I think it is about 
being personal in a way that isn't necessarily talking about your life, but it's just being so you yeah, that yeah. no one can forget it yeah. the exact way you did it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that is what makes the difference because I've seen so many acts. I'm, I'm clutching my sides and, uh, and then, you know, ne- on to the next comic. And I never yeah. ask after the show, like, you know, like the comedy magic club, one guy after another kills. Yeah. You know, and then, you, but you don't ask who they are. Well, that was Jay Leno. <laughs> <laughs> On Sunday night, yeah. But who was like, that guy with the chin? <laughs> but there's, you know, there's uh, sometimes when you're just listening to the radio, there's uh, songs you're like, this is good, this is fine, but then there's a song. Right, it's on, exactly you know, the same I gotta thing. know this song. Right. Who's the song? What is that? Yeah. Yeah, it's just something there. And you know what? Whenever you like Shazam, that song, or like, it ends up being like, call me maybe. Like yeah. every, everyone <laughs> has the again. same idea. That fucking hook. Yeah. yeah. You're like, this, this yes, one yeah. I like. No, everyone loves this. Yeah, song. yeah, exactly. Yeah, it tends to resonate. I thought I discovered Royals about a month ago. Right, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, Royal. I was like, what is this? It's like, oh, it's yeah. a double yeah. Oh, it's the biggest song in the world? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. okay. Uh, is, is Lord the second coming of music? Or are there all of her songs that... Like well, that. I another we'll song today. Yeah, there's a couple. Yeah, there's another there's a couple good, songs yeah. on that. It's really well produced. It's really good. Yeah. She's nice got a good aesthetic, coming. good style. Getting good old head about her. She's getting. Yeah, she's <laughs> almost yeah. seventeen. Yeah, she's almost. <laughs> oh, she better uh, better figure it out if she's gonna find a husband. Am I right? right. You guys? Yeah, I already yeah, got that boyfriend. The internet hates <laughs> that adorable Asian kid. <laughs> I told you. Oh. I told. I told you about this in the parking lot. There's a. I don't. I'm. I, Chris is out the parking lot because I said something. Because I said something that was jokingly misogynistic. Uh, See the meta thing; it won't play. Yeah. It's not going to yeah. play in the. It's not going to play in the flyover states. Um, there's a there's a YouTube video that Chloe showed me last night called Coffee Jerks, and it's there's an alarming there was an alarming number of commercials in the 50s and 60s where a it was a husband a working husband and his doting housewife, and the housewife was terrible at making coffee, and the husband would berate her. Time after time after time after time. And it was not always the same coffee, not the same commercial. It was just a weird thing that was in the air. I guess kind of like mother Wait, this jokes. is a compilation or it it's was... It's a compilation. So you see It's like, not a parody. No. So oh, I got to see it. Actual commercials. It's like 15 in a row of a... Of, you're like, here's your coffee, dear. And he's like, oh, I'm, I'm going to go get coffee at the plant. This is terrible. And she's like, oh, John. You know. Oh, when people had viable careers at plants in America. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's sad for a lot of reasons, Matt. But, but just, like, it was just, just husband after husband berating cookie-cutter wife after cookie-cutter wife. <laughs> what was such a slice of, like, oh, God, I'm so glad I do not live in that America right. anymore. Yeah, yeah. Like, that sort of weird... You know, so I don't know. There's something great about that. Oh, you would think fear so, of nuclear yeah. war. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a doting wife who knew her place. Yeah, she knew how to make some fucking coffee. No, these ones didn't. <sighs> um, so when did you start writing the book? And uh, the book's out. It's not coming out till February? February 4th. 4th. Oh, Which not is coming out till two yeah. days. Yeah, from so like... this is going out. This was coming out. Monday. This goes Monday, yeah. So this comes out the day before the book. Awesome. Um, it comes out tomorrow. Yeah. Still time to pre-order it on Amazon. You can just get it. You just regular order it. <laughs> <laughs> just regular mail it. I never pre-order anything. I'm like, let, let I me pre-order CDs. I've accidentally pre-ordered stuff CDs, before. I, I was like, oh, that's like, oh, what? Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what's Wait, fun about you getting free interest on this? <laughs> you should just pre-order stuff even if you don't think you want it because it's a nice gift that pays off later I, that you forget about. I oh. looked at the uh, pre-order date on Grand Theft Auto V because it had been pushed so many times. I had pre-ordered it uh, November 12th. 2012. 2012, I pre-ordered the game. Oh, wow. And it didn't come out until September 13th. 
I, mean, it's, I thought you were going to say, and you pre-ordered it like four times because you like got yeah, drunk. And was like, oh, I've done that. Yeah, I've had many copies of things uh-huh. show up on the day of. I was like, great. <laughs> what, came, what came more than one copy? Uh, Mrs. Doubtfire on Blu-ray. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Blu-ray, good. Yeah, you really need to see that in the Christmas quality. Oh, it's a special uh, version yeah. of it. Uh, a <laughs> couple of copies of uh, of. Um, League of Their Own mm-hmm. came. Mm-hmm. Blu-ray. It's a lot of things that are, haven't been out on Blu-ray yeah. that I end up pre-ordering okay. on Blu-ray. A couple of RoboCops. Are, <laughs> it's, don't worry about it. How many RoboCops right. you got in You got a couple of RoboCops? Yeah, I got a couple of RoboCops. You need a RoboCop? So what was, what, what's, what's the book about and, and uh, when, how long... I, 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 like, I like to know people's book writing process. How long did it take you to write? How many times did you have to go back and tinker with it? And how did you know it was done? Um... It was definitely the most sort of a personal creative thing I'd ever done um, in that I didn't – it was sort of the opposite of a lot of things that I was saying about my process. It was not at all um, deliberate at the beginning. It was for the first time in a, that I could remember for me like kind of is just doing something to do it and not knowing what the goal was exactly um, – for a while, I think it was kind of a, a reaction to having been on the office for so long as a writer, especially where every thought I had was limited in in terms of all right, is this a Dwight line? Is this a Creed line? Right? Is this Jim to Pam? You know, if if something romantic came into my head, say, oh, could Jim say this to Pam? Maybe Pam says this to Jim. But it was never yeah. like, what if a man? <laughs> <laughs> But then also, you know, there was probably a bin of things where you were like, oh, no one would say this. Yes. I guess I just I, have And to I let collected those go. in a box of notebooks that I went through. Um, the year before I left the office, I had four weeks off, and I spent two weeks um, transcribing all these pocket notebooks that I had kept for eight years. And I thought that they would add up to a screenplay or something. <laughs> and instead I had like 495 like opening shots, basically. <laughs> um, it was just all these things. And opening shot, Dunder Mifflin. Opening yeah, shot, Mifflin. no, but like, you know, there were crazy things that never would have fit in the office or, or like odd lines or some, something for someone to say at a bar that was like, you know, jarring and interesting. You know, it was interesting concepts, but they didn't, um, they didn't fit together. Uh, and I liked them all a lot. I mean, I wrote. It, it takes effort to like take out a notebook and write something down when you don't know what you're going to do with it. You really care about that idea. So I cared about these ideas, but they didn't really fit together. And so I, I transcribed them. And then now, what do I do? I had a like a 43-page single-space document hmm. of ideas that hadn't ever been right for anything um, that I really cared about. And then I went back to the office. Then the office ended. And then I had all these projects that were on my to-do list that I'd been telling my agents and everything all these years. Oh, as soon as I get time, I'm going to write this screenplay. I'm going to write this pilot. And uh, instead, I just started writing these prose pieces, um, short stories. Some were, you know, like some were like four lines, and I was like, "This is done. I'm proud of this." And others were you know, like a 15-page short story. And I just kept working and working on them. And uh, finally, after like two months, I started emailing them to people and um, reading them out loud to people. It just kind of very like uh, tenderly with a lot of fear, feeling out what the hell they were. Um, and then when I got validation on a few of them, I was like, okay, got it. And I like <laughs> then I went to work and like, started revising them a million times and started performing them live at the UCB. I started 
booking the UCB once a month and reading stories. And that made me edit them really rigorously because I never wanted to be standing on stage reading something boring. Mm -hmm. You can't hide behind the, uh, the delusion that you are brilliant uh, if you're on stage bombing or <laughs> boring people. And so that kept me really, really honest with cutting pieces that were no good or, um, or improving pieces that were good that I wanted to really ride. Um, so I would read those stories at, at the UCB like once a month for like an hour. And then I kind of, it kind of like, again, it was, it was such a newly artistic process for me. I was kind of more of, you know, the high school editor in chief of the paper before mm-hmm. that. And now I kind of was more of a, um, a, a more of like an artist's approach, um, which was very indulgent on the one hand. And then I counteracted with like, what, let's edit this for the, for the audience on the other hand. So it took about a year. Um, and I felt crazy because telling someone that you're working on a book of short stories is like, God, it, it's like one of the surest, crazy old man. A perpetual yeah. motion it's like, machine. Yes, that's it's going like, to work. It's yeah. code for you're never going to hear from me again. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it really felt like like something you do when you've when you've gone off the deep end, and no one's ever going to hear from you again. Going to make our microwave. That but it's cool what I wanted thing. to do. Yeah. But how I, you know, I I'm always so thankful that um, that I have stand up. You know, like the, it's such an open to be able to get up on a stage and work things out. I yeah, mean, that's what we did with that midnight. We worked yeah. it out on stage before we got on the air. You and, know it in your bones what works. And so yeah. having having that, you well, feel we're still it. tweaking, BJ. We're still tweaking. <laughs> but having well, you know which show yeah. was better than the others, having I've, that ability yeah. to get up in front of people and just work stuff out. Yeah. Even if it's not meant to be a performance piece, but just kind of to, to workshop the beats and yeah. have the audience and yeah. have the feedback is like I feel like I feel like we're very very lucky because you can you can translate that to a lot of different artistic extremely lucky yeah. and that I had the ability to I knew who booked the UCB I had done stand up there enough that they would book me a show I'd been on TV so people would come and give me the benefit of the doubt and I was able to uh, edit twenty times a story in front of a live audience like. How many times have you done the best stuff in your stand-up act? Oh yeah, thousands. Mm. That that's going to be the best stuff is the stuff that you're able to to um, workshop like that. So I was able to do that with these stories. It was a huge advantage. Your book is almost like your hour-long special. It is my hour-long special, yeah. and I turned down an hour-long from um, from Comedy Central because I wasn't. I I had wanted to do it, and then I was like, no, that's not. Like, this is what I want to do. Mm-hmm. This is actually, ironically, and to come full circle, the stand-up that I was never, always self-conscious that it wasn't personal enough. Um, to me, the most personal part of my stand-up act is actually when I'm reading note cards <laughs> and throwing out the ones that don't work and keeping it, the yeah. ones working. First well, time thanks. I went to the improv in Melrose was you were headlining. Uh-huh. It was you, Eric Charles Nielsen, and yeah. Charlene Yee. Yeah. Oh, wow. And, uh, cool lineup. And it was great. It was yeah. a great show. And then that part where he's just like throwing out yeah. jokes. Yeah. So I'm, you had the briefcase? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The briefcase. Yeah. And the I still do so it when funny. I perform. And actually, I've, I've realized, like, I've tried, I've experimented with being more personal on stage, telling personal stories. It doesn't really work for me. I... I think I subconsciously you're not comfortable. Maybe you're comfortable when you're doing that. When I am, and but I'm also more exposed. Like to me, that is me. Yeah. I am someone who writes something and then wants to show you what I have written, 
and cares what you think of it. Yeah. Yeah. And so that actually is the purest me is reading these one-liners <laughs> and reacting to it. And so the book too, like that actually is the most vulnerable, honest, purest me is the person who wrote these stories that don't actually have anything to do with my life, but are so obviously my, my most desperate attempt to create something worthwhile. Well, um, are, do you have to go? Uh, soon. Okay. I know you're going to meet. You just meet really day. hate what I'm saying. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, no, no you're no, like no. shifting like, dude, I, I, I can't. Uh, I've known you well, for Jonah, 10 years. That's why you need microphones. Just so you know, Jonah was supposed to meet up with Dee and I, and we were like, oh, it's, you know, BJ's going to be here. He's like, oh, I want to stick around for that. So he's, he's stuck around so we could all hang out. But it is funny that, you know, and then going back to the beginning of the podcast, you know, without these microphones, it's unlikely that not because I don't want to or you don't want to, yeah. that we would have sat down and had a you talk. You need an excuse. But, it's the, yeah. but this is the best conversation that we've ever had. Yes. Not, and again, not because I didn't want to have it before, but just because like you in the truck with Brad Pitt, like, oh, I don't really know this person. What yeah. do I ask him? And this is a reason to get to know you better. And, and it's been a complete joy. And now I hope that we can actually just go hang out without microphones and talk about these Guys, things. Guys, let's go to Musso and Frank's. <laughs> and uh, There? You want to go to Musso and yeah, Frank's? Yeah, why not? It seems where people talk, right? I don't know. Yeah. yeah. You read a guidebook on Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, then we'll hit the Brown Derby in the Ambassador Hotel. Yeah, yeah. I hear there's a place where... You know, the are... cast from Entourage hangs out at the Roosevelt. <laughs> Wax versions of people that will stand in a museum. But um, uh, what's the book called? One More Thing, Stories and Other Stories. That comes out February 4th. Also, and also, you have the most unbelievable ability to... I always know... There was a... In my brain, I was like... Oh, it's like a, a, the Novak was a thing where we'd be hanging out, and then you'd turn around, you'd turn back around, and then you were just gone for the rest of the night. You had the ability to vanish at, in a party. Oh. Like, that was like... <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't aware okay. of that. <laughs> That what that feels like. <laughs> that you, there's like I would always, I always go, oh, there's BJ, and then we we talk for a minute, and then and then I wouldn't see you again for the rest of the night. Oh, now that you know, could have also master. been you leaving to go do oh, something. Oh, I'm else sorry. No, back. I'm sorry. I was confusing you with. It was not you at all. It was Jarek Rohde. I was going to say, you know who's the master? That is Jarek Rohde. I'm sorry. It was not you at all. It was yeah. Jarek Rohde. I apologize. I was like, yeah. I was like, I don't think so. But Jarek Rohde. It's been so amazing. long since we all hung out as a group. Yeah. I'm sorry. That was actually a yeah, Grody. Yeah, yeah. Jarek Rohde was the one who... Maybe BJ just hadn't shaved like in three days. Yeah. yeah. We, have, we have a similar <laughs> head shape. Yeah. Jarek Rohde was... I'm so sorry. I confused that for a second. In my head, it, it smashed the two of you together. No. Because you guys were... You were really good friends. Yeah. For, do, you still, are you still, do you still get to hang out much? Um, now and then... Um, w- Again, like the Saga thing, like with great affection. Like, yeah. Jared Grody! Yeah. You know, yeah. they get no, together and watch Now often. and Then. The That's Rosie how long Adama it's been movie. since we've all hung out, is that it was, that was during that period of time mm-hmm. where, where you and Jared were really, really like hanging out a lot. And yeah, and Jared, he would just fucking vanish. Yeah. And, it, I, and I, I would almost feel like I was doing this thing where I'm like, all right, there's two <laughs> doors. There's no, he's over there. There's no way out that way. He's not going to get out. And you turn around and like, where the fuck did he go? Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, let's hang out. Let's hang out after the, not, uh, you know, like when you have time. Are you busy now with, uh, with... I do a book tour like all of February, which right. is a short month though. That's not bad. Yeah. And then, then I live in LA. I love it here. So right, I'll see you around. So and congratulations. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah. I appreciate that. It's been a, it's been a fun... But it's been fun. It's yeah. all fun. Hmm. I mean, you probably feel the same thing where you kind of go, oh, I can't believe I get to do what I get to do. It's really silly. Yeah, but it, it's special. And you've done things you didn't want to do. 
Oh, and yeah. I have two. That was and called it's, 1997 <laughs> to 2007. Yeah, it's really great when people congratulate you on something that you are glad you're doing. <laughs> I've, I've it's just, really great. I'm yeah. finally out of the, the of the but period where you go. Yeah. Well, I'm working on this thing, but I mean, you know, it's like yeah. I don't know. It's a it's a. You silly. can appreciate the fame. Uh, <laughs> well, I can just appreciate the work. I just appreciate. Yeah. I'm just sort of proud of what what you know the stuff. I'm I love just, it. I'm excited about. I it. I love getting paid to write. Stupid dick jokes. Just the <laughs> stupidest dick jokes. So dumb. And then I go, I'm getting money for it. I fill out a time card and they hand me money. <laughs> well, I'll let you go so you can go write more of those. And, um, I'm done for yeah, the busy. I was in my car driving <laughs> and home. And you came back. Yeah, I drove back. Oh, I drove back nice. for this. I thought you'd started 40 minutes earlier and I was like, well, it's too late now. Yeah, I, got, I went to the wrong location. Yeah, it was a mix-up. Not a crazy idea, though, to go to Meltdown because we're there a lot of the time. No, I know. So, I was sent to Meltdown. So I, I apologize. Not by you guys. I totally, I totally apologize. I, if you're going to kill time for 40 minutes, Meltdown's a great Meltdown's place. Meltdown's an okay place for you to be. Yeah. It's a great place. Um, and, and if you ever want to do, if you ever want to try out stuff there and UCP's booked or whatever, then you can yeah, totally to. use the theater for whatever you want. Thanks. Uh, all right. Enjoy your burrito, everyone. What are you staring at? Nothing. It was, it was like an anticipation. Of what? Oh, I thought you had worked that a bit. Yeah. I, I thought you were about yeah. to say like your part. about to eject a, some no, no, sort no, of no, comedy like, gold. With extra salsa. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what, what did they do here that I don't know? <laughs> I was waiting for your tag, too. I was like, he's going to say something. Well, he's leaning in. I was like, are we done? Because that was me almost getting up. Well, so, I mean, one more thing I before you get up. I'm going to see how yeah. long like, it's going to last. I want to see, see, see what Jonah's boundaries are versus his loyalty to this podcast and his loyalty to his wife. Like, how long can we I We don't keep want to explore that. Comfortably keep. Because <laughs> we will lose every time. <laughs> yes, my wife is more important than either of you <laughs> yes, assholes. What are you talking about? <laughs> no, so, yeah. We get it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, get out of here, you. I'm going to wait till the fucking podcast is done. What are you afraid of? What? What are you afraid of? That we'll just keep doing it? No, I just want to show us. No, you can go. Just call it. Just say it's over. Say thanks for tuning in. Enjoy your burrito. Now stop the recording, Uh, and then I'll leave. Nice. (laughs) Katie does that. Yeah, that's Katie's domain. I'm gonna get. I'll get. I'll get. I'll get. Now leaving nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. I feel like I was blindsided. Because it's a competition show. From the producers of Jury Duty and The Bachelor. We have scoured the earth for the 14 greatest reality contestants that were available during our production window. Comes a reality competition show about reality competition shows. Nobody has dared to find out who is the actual best at just being on a reality show. I'm your host, comedian Daniel Tosh. Is winner go home. Each episode, our contestants will face new challenges that will test their strength and lack of life skills for a chance to win two hundred million dollars. $200,000. Prepare, because it's about to be ugly crying. Lots of fighting. Tasha, I have to defend myself. Celebrating 25 years of reality TV with your favorites. I have diarrhea. You cannot do this to me. What in gay hell have I got myself into? The Goat, premiering on Freebie and Prime Video on May 9th. 